Father, we are so grateful for Your love and faithfulness to us. Your mercies that are new every morning. Um, Father, You're good to us. We recognize what a privilege it is to just sit here in order and quietness in a calm community. To receive the Word of God. To fellowship with believers. To be strengthened in our walk for another week. While in places around the world, the church and those who name the name of Christ are being persecuted in, in heinous ways today. In Syria, in Iraq, in Nigeria, in other parts, there is a bloodbath going on. Help us to be alert to the news, to be upholding these in prayer. Father, we recognize that You see them, that You are sovereign over the affairs of men, but this morning, as we've watched the news for another week, our hearts... Um, are just heavy with the realities of what's going on and and much of what's not even being reported. Thank you for the quietness reported in Israel today. We pray for peace there. We pray for the defeat of terrorists everywhere and those who are anti-Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us in these days of plenty still and these days of great freedom that we would just um, be a strong church that... We would not be lazy, uh, disobedient, or careless, but that we would recognize that the doors of opportunity are endless and that it is a day and a time for the church to be in love with Christ and to be obedient to Your Word. And I pray that You would work in us, even through the preaching of the Word today, that You would stir our hearts. Thank You for Your great love, that You love sinners and that You love broken people and that You put lives back together. And we're grateful for that. So give us ears to hear now and hearts that are willing to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think that you can relate to a common phenomenon that we see occurring with the the popularity of social media particularly and the internet specifically. And that is that people with the quality of their of their um, smartphones are capturing incredible moments on video and they're posting them for all of us to see. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, Let me remind you of a couple occurrences and you'll know exactly. How about just a a few weeks ago, um, a circus act of a human chandelier where people are with their children in the circus and they're videotaping this like 25 women all interlaced, hanging high in the air of the circus tent, and all of a sudden a clevis or a cable of some kind lets loose, and they come crashing down to the floor in brokenness, and people shriek, and it's all on film, and we watch it and we rewatch it. Um, this week there was a hot air balloon um, that was posted, that was somebody captured it on their phone, and they were trying to get this balloon to elevate um, to an altitude to clear some high-tension power lines, and they didn't make it, and it hit the the high-tension power lines, and it it just burst into flames. And you can hear the shrieks. Oh! Some of you were right here in Martinsburg at the air show um, a year or so ago when a plane flew into the ground, and smoke billows and fire and parts fly everywhere, and, and the crowd is aghast. I want you to have that mindset as I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As Jesus is addressing the crowd, I want you to 
to hear the gasp. I want you to know that all of a sudden, Jesus is shocking the crowd. The crowd is going to be shocked. Now, it's probably a little bit of an overstatement to think that it's quite up to a, a, a plane crashing into the ground in front of the bleachers at an air show. But that's the concept here. I want you to recognize that in this context, and remember, we're not the first audience to hear this word. We have to remember the historical context. Jesus is speaking to a group of people who've been following Him. They're attentive to Him. They're listening. Surrounding are also those who are curious. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they're watching in. Slinking around the outer circle of the crowd. Watching, listening to this carpenter from Nazareth as he gives this discourse, this Sermon on the Mount. And all of a sudden he says something and it's like the plane crashed. And the air goes out of the audience. And it's not for them, did you see that? Did we really just see that? It's not that. It's, did you hear that? Did He really just say that? And though I told you we were going to move ahead into the next section where last week I said this, for chapter 5, there's going to be six specific statements that Jesus is going to make. And you recall, if you are here last week, we were talking about Jesus and His Bible. Jesus talking about the Old Testament and the Law. We'll reread it in just a minute, beginning with verse 17. But let your eyes go to verse 21, because remember, Jesus is in a section here where He is going to make statements that they have never heard before. He is going to, in their minds and particularly in the minds of the Pharisees, those religious critical leaders of the day who despised Christ and did not believe that He was the Messiah, they thought that He had gotten it all wrong. And so Jesus six times is going to use the phrase, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And He's going to quote the Old Testament law. That's in verse 21. You have heard that it was said, Thou shalt not murder. Of course we've heard that. It's in the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't stop there. He says, verse 22, But I say to you, that if you despise your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. They've never heard this stuff before. It's like he's reinterpreting the law. And that's why in verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come to show you what they mean and what they teach. And I have come to live them out perfectly. For truly I say to you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The reason Jesus is saying that is because He knows, as we stated last week, what He's going to teach in a minute, and they're going to accuse Him of, of dumbing down the law, changing the law, restating the law. He said, I'm not here to reteach the law in a different way. I'm telling you what it really means. And if anybody would relax this standard... They're not going to get into that kingdom of heaven. But if somebody teaches them how the law states, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, 
Verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus gives this final statement in verse 20, and I got stuck on that verse when I was studying this week, intending to pick it up with the next section, 21 through 26, on anger and murder. And the title of our message next week, Virtual Murder. You can do virtual murder in your heart and Jesus is going to expand upon the law. You don't have to take a knife and stick it in somebody's chest to kill them. You can murder, do the equivalent of murder with your thought. That's like, wait a minute. But before they even get there, that's not the startling statement. The startling statement, the shock that runs through the audience has to be verse 20. Look what he says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think the air went out of the audience. Huh. What's he saying? So you need to understand something. The standard of righteousness in this era, in this historical context, Okay, And in this cultural context, the standard of righteousness was the Pharisees. They dressed it. They had certain robes. They talked it. They acted a certain way. And little children would point to them. Say, ooh, the Pharisees. There was a Jewish proverb that said, if only two people get to go to heaven, one will be a scribe and one will be a Pharisee. It's a little bit like being Pastor Van. You think my life is easy. I was at a funeral yesterday and I was talking to a family and they were telling me a story and laughing and it was funny about their kid at home will pull the Pastor Van card once in a while and say, I'm going to tell Pastor Van like Pastor Van is God. Like if anybody gets to go to heaven, you know who it will be. Pastor Van. Pretty sure. Don't you kind of think about preachers like that? You know, choir directors, you know, piano players, violin players, they are going to be in heaven. Sprout wings. It's a little bit that mindset of how we think. You know, you better straighten up when the preachers are around. When, when Pharisees are around and in the community, that's how they were thought of. This audience would have believed that if anybody knew the law, if anybody understood the law, if anybody kept the law, it was the Pharisees. And they're going to, and then it says the scribes. Oh, the scribes. You can tell the scribes by the kind of clothes they wear. They're really dedicated people. They're like missionaries who go to Africa or something. It's like if anybody's going to heaven, they're going to heaven. Scribes were people, um, the main core of scribes that I think are being referenced here, were people who basically dedicated their entire lives to the study of Scripture. They were students of the law. They were experts. The Pharisees had a little more political clout. The scribes were just kind of like... They just hold up in a library like a monk and studied the Word. Hey, if anybody's going to heaven, they're going to heaven. And so the plane wrecks right in front of the audience. They're like, can you believe what he just said? Because we have a problem here. And so we have, number one in our message today, this shocking pronouncement. A shocking pronouncement. And the reason it's such a shocking pronouncement is because, first of all, that's not what I thought. That's not what I thought. I thought... 
that scribes and Pharisees do get into heaven. I thought that I probably am not good enough to get into heaven. I'm not as good as they are. And scribes and Pharisees, they keep the law so they can get into heaven. And so I'm shocked. And first of all, I'm thought, because that's not what I thought. I want to tell you that it's possible for someone in the room today that what I'm going to challenge you is is the righteousness that will get you into heaven might not be what you think. It might not be what you think. It's possible to think the wrong thoughts. Not only that, secondly, it's not what this audience was taught. It's not only what you thought was wrong, but what you're taught was wrong, that messes with your mind. It is possible to be taught something your entire life and to find out it's wrong. Now what's really serious about it is when you don't want to find out about that is when you're standing before God one day after you die and you're standing before God and you're trying to explain to God that He doesn't have it straight because you thought something different. You either made up your own system of righteousness or you thought something you understood was a certain way or you were taught in a flawed system and it wasn't biblical or Christ-centered and God is going to look at you and say, I don't know you. So this is what's going on in the mind of the audience. And it ought to go on in our minds today. If the scribes and the Pharisees can't get into heaven, then who can? You see, it is possible. This is what concerns me today. I'm speaking to the individual today who believes something to be true. That's not. Because it's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Christ is teaching. I remember one time when I was building our house in 2000, I had the foundation walls and basement walls built, and I was working with a plank. Um, can you picture how the basement's not backfilled, the house isn't built, just the basement walls are up, and, and I was putting drain tile or, and pipe around my foundation footers, and my house wasn't backfilled yet, so there's a big gulf, and the piles of dirt around, and I was using an old plank, uh, sticking it in the dirt over here and letting it sit on the foundation wall. And then I was filling my wheelbarrow full of gravel and I was wheeling out on this 2x12 or 2x10 plank, getting up by the wall edge and I was dumping my gravel down along the wall. Then I would move... Well, the, the plank had a knot in it. It was half cracked. And it was really scaring me. So I went and got an old piece of 2x4 and jammed it up in there and drove a 16-penny nail through the top for my little prop pole. And I just kept using it and it worked great. I used it all afternoon. I was wheeling my wheelbarrow out there. And pr- the next afternoon, I had Tasha with me, our daughter. She was about 15 at the time. And I was just getting ready to work and I needed to get my gravel. I was shoveling gravel and dumping gravel. And I just set up my plank and Tasha looked and she said, Dad, that's not safe. You're going to fall. And I said, Tosh, don't worry about it. I've been doing it like this all along. I had no worries. I believed I knew what I was doing. The very first load of gravel. Shoveling that gravel, running, hurrying out on my plank, way out there in the deepest part, so it's the entire bait depth of my basement. Dumped my gravel and followed it all in. When that board broke so fast, went face first right into the handle of my wheelbarrow and busted up my face and got all bruised up. You know what Tasha said? I told you. You should have listened to me, Dad. I'll tell you something. When you believe something to be true, you're not very good at listening to advice. Do you know that? 
When you believe that you know what you're talking about, you think, don't worry about it. So you don't heed warning. But the second part, when you believe something to be true, you need to be careful because you could be heading for a major crash. And so today is a day to check. What do I believe? And what is Jesus teaching here? And what is this all about? And as the air goes out of this audience, and they're all standing there and sitting there in stunned silence with this shocking pronouncement, that's not what I thought, and that's not what I've been taught. We now find ourselves, secondly, in the middle of a scary predicament. Number two, a scary predicament. Because what's Jesus' point? Listen, if the scribes and the Pharisees, their righteousness is not good enough to get them into heaven, the point is, essentially, then your righteousness is not good enough to get you into heaven. It's just not good enough. And so we have a predicament. And I think it's very important for all people everywhere to get to a place where we understand that there is absolutely nothing we can do to gin up the righteousness to convince God someday that we're good enough to get into His heaven. And so I just wanted to camp on this verse today. And I want you to have this picture of God and you are in His presence and He's going to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? And you're going to say, because I'm righteous. Righteous means goodness, holiness, a value. I'm righteous. So God is perfect. God is perfectly holy. His standard is perfect holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy. So if you could keep the whole law, God would let you into heaven. So if you have kept all of the law, you've never sinned, don't raise your hand. That would be a sin. You would be lying. You're standing before God and you say, I have never sinned. I am perfectly righteous then God would be able to look at Jesus at his right hand and he would be able to say, is that one of yours? He would say, say, I think so. His his righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. But you can't do that. Because we have a problem. That our righteousnesses, the Old Testament says, are as filthy rags. The best thing we could muster up to dangle in in the eyes of God as some kind of righteous deed is not good enough. Because we're tainted, we're innately sinful, and we sin because we're sinners. So we have this scary predicament. If the righteousness, here's the predicament, if the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is not good enough to get somebody into heaven, what kind of righteousness is? I mean, because otherwise we're hopeless. I mean, let's use an example of somebody that we can relate to. I think most of you can. Older people. Mother Teresa. Right? If ever there is a person who has been elevated, even by evangelical preachers, as a righteous person, it's Mother Teresa. Now, I'm pretty concerned that she had major issues in her theology And that maybe she wasn't relying upon the righteousness of Christ, which we're going to find out is the only righteousness that saves. But beyond a shadow of a doubt, Mother Teresa elevated herself above the average person as a person of good works. Right? Really good works. What I mean by good works, works, something that we do, some physical activity, some 
kind act works. That by good works, we think that Mother Teresa has to be righteous enough to go to heaven. And so, if somebody said to you, your righteousness, your good works have to pass up Mother Teresa, you would say, well, then I'm out of the game. Because I can't do that. You know, you know, it's already too late for most of us. We will never match Mother Teresa. We're just not going to change the kind of bandages she's changed. We're not going to sleep on a, on a bed without a mattress like she did. We're not going to fast as much as she fasted and pray as many hours as she prayed. All right? We're just not going to do that. So we cannot do that, and so the predicament is there. So I would like us to examine, finally, number three, the saving prerequisite. The saving prerequisite. And to do so, I want to return to a passage of Scripture that we've already visited in our Sermon on the Mount series. And it was when we were on the beginning of the Beatitudes where we, we saw the very first Beatitude was, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What in the world did poor in spirit? Remember we said that was a broken-hearted person who was broken over their sinfulness. They were poor in spirit. It had the idea of cowering down and being overwhelmed with, with the reality of your own poverty and brokenness so that you like hunkered down and you would hide underneath the tablecloth picking up crumbs. And we used a couple different parables and stories, and one of them that we encountered, I would ask you to turn to right now, is Luke chapter 18. But I want to approach it from the opposite direction. Before, when we turned to Luke 18, if you'll recall, we were looking at the, the tax collector and his brokenness as an illustration of being poor in spirit. In the story, there's two guys. Now, this is a parable. A parable is a story that everybody can relate to. It's a common story. It's a word picture. And Jesus was the master of telling these, these story word pictures that everybody could relate to. And then, bam, he brings home a spiritual truth in the story. So it just magnifies it. This is a parable. All right? It's possible that it was based on something that Jesus had observed, but a parable means that it's not real people. It's a make-believe story to illustrate a truth. And so as Jesus tells this story, you're going to see that there's two people in the story. It's real easy to understand, but instead of looking at the brokenness of the tax collector, which we will talk about, but I want to use the self-righteous Pharisee as a model for our study for us to examine, okay, what kind of righteousness does a Pharisee have? That's important because if our righteousness needs to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees that Jesus just taught, let's look at this Pharisee where his righteousness is exposed and examine it and make sure that our righteousness goes beyond that. So what kind of righteousness does this Pharisee have? Here's the story, Luke 18, verse 9. We're critiquing now the Pharisee's righteousness. He also, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men, here's the parable, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Okay, so here they are. 
The Pharisee, we already understand. They're on the outskirts of the crowd listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus has said to the people right in front of them, your, fair, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Religious leader, politically, politically connected, self-righteous, high-end, reinterprets the law, always keeps the law. You're going to see that in just a minute. And the other guy is a tax collector. Now, what we need to understand, in, when Luke wrote this, when Luke the historian recounted this parable, everyone would understand, and we've talked about this before, but know that if you want to if you want to name the lowest lowlife, you want to you want to demonstrate who is the worst person you can ever think of. You would say tax collector. Tax collector. Sometimes in the New Testament it would say prostitute and tax collector. And it was the Pharisees pointing these things out often because, interestingly enough, it's often those people where Jesus spent time, paid attention. So a tax collector was someone who had been a turncoat to their, to their Jewish uh, loyalties and Israelite loyalties. They had sold out to Rome. They're the kind of guys who would pick the gold out of their mother's teeth, you know at her funeral, right in front of everybody with no shame. They were liars, they were cheats, they were cutthroats, they were only interested in themselves. And so when you say tax collector, you're talking about somebody that surely isn't going to heaven. And if you say Pharisee, all of the boys and girls and everybody says, yeah, they're going to heaven. Two men went up to the temple to pray, verse 10. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. Oh, he could pray. God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house, here's the word, justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's critique the Pharisees' righteousness. First of all, in the introduction in verse 9 to the story, we see that the Pharisees' righteousness was focused on self and was characterized by pride. His righteousness was a self-righteous righteousness and it was focused on himself and it was built upon pride. Look what it says. It says right there that they um, trusted in themselves. He trusted in himself. I, I recently talked to a man. It was when I was gone for 30 days. I encountered a man and I was having a conversation with him. And I, and I was trying to share the Gospel with him and I said to him, I said, listen, the most important thing that you need to understand is that you need to put your faith and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and be saved. I said it just like that to him. He looked at me and he said to me, he said, I trust only in myself. I trust in myself and that's it. And I was just like, oh, man. Trust in yourself if you want, but that's a board that's going to break. This Pharisee, 
He had a righteousness, but it was a righteousness that he built in himself. He decided that he was a good guy. He decided that he could keep the rules. He decided that he could make up his own rules and keep those rules and that everybody else could just poo-poo. That's it. It was a... It was focused on self and characterized in pride. You'll notice that five times when he begins to pray, and I dare say he prayed loudly and from the upfront spot, because you can see the contrast with the tax collector is that he stood afar off. It means he didn't even come in where everybody was. The, the Pharisee stood up where everybody could see him, spoke and prayed loudly, and five times, God, I thank you that I'm not like that. I fast, I give, I get... I, I, I. The second thing I want you to see is that it features personal good behavior. The second thing we see as we critique the righteousness of the Pharisee is that it features personal good behavior. This is works. Things that I do that I think impress God. You'll see it very clearly here in the Pharisee. Look what he says. Standing by himself, he prayed, verse 11, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That's the pride-based righteousness. And by the way, we should probably talk about that a second. We do that, don't we? We look around our neighborhood, we look around our office complex, and we say, man, I can't believe that guy. And it's one thing to be discerning, but often at the heart of our discernment is the, is the issue of pride where we say, I would never do what that guy does. And I got this neighbor, and he's sleeping around, and I got this neighbor, and he gets drunk every weekend, and I got this neighbor, well, he's just a hoarder, and he would never give anything to anybody who's poor, and I'll bet you he doesn't have anything on his taxes that shows that he gives, to the, gives away to nonprofits. I always give to nonprofits. And even as we sort this stuff out, in comparing ourselves with other people, we have this self-righteous aspect to ourselves and it's couched in a pride whereby we are thankful that we are not like other people like that. I'm so thankful that I would never do that. You've got to really watch it. The heart is really deceptive. The flesh is really vulnerable to this kind of thing. But secondly, this featuring good behavior, look what he says. I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he goes, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. He's a liar and a scum and I'm not like him and thank you. No, here's what I am. He features his good behavior. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see, you have to understand that what he's saying is representative of a lifestyle that he builds into his spiritual world things that surpass the demands of the law. The law didn't demand fasting twice a week, but he fasts twice a week. He made it up. He made up his own system. And he tithed. Oh, you tithe your paycheck, don't you? Huh. I'm better than that. I tithe everything I have. I tithe, I tithe my lawnmower. I mow little old ladies' lawns with my lawnmower for free because it's my tithe. And, and I, tithe, I tithe gift cards when I get them. You just tithe your paycheck. If I get a gift card, I tithe my gift card. So if I get a $5 Dairy Queen card, I'd be sure and swing by, pick up Pastor Van and take him to Dairy Queen. And I buy him a 
pecan cluster blizzard. For Jesus' sake. And then I've tied. I don't even use it myself. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing. See, you know, you tithe. You fast. You tithe. You're good. But you're not as good as I am. I surpass. I tithe everything. If I have a tomato plant, I'd be sure and give away one-tenth of my tomatoes to the rescue mission. And everything that I have, regularly, I tithe it out. And I can't think of anything that I have that I haven't tithed and tithed repeatedly. And I'm going to even pray about whether I should tithe 12% instead of 10% when I fast all day tomorrow. Did I tell you I'm going to fast all day tomorrow? And I already fasted yesterday. But this is really important to me to understand whether I should tithe more than you do. Is this how this stuff works? It's, it just permeates to the core and... He can't function without it. And it features his personal good behavior. You know, I find that almost everyone who misunderstands righteousness in God's eyes has built into their lives a system of good behavior that they think is going to please God enough to let him into heaven. It's all over the place. You talk to people all the time. It's why it's very difficult to lead Americans to Christ. For one thing, Jesus said, it's almost impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? He doesn't need God. He has no brokenness. He has no poverty. He has nothing to drive him on his face in full dependence to God. The other thing is he's self-righteous. And he has created a system whereby he feels really good about himself. I'm feeling really good about where I am. Yeah. Yeah, I feel really good. I, you know, I, I haven't thought any bad thoughts today. And, you know, I'm not, I'm, I got my family put together. And, and when I stand before God and He says, why should I let you into my heaven? There's no way He could pitch me into a Christless eternity in the lake of fire because I'm too good. And almost everybody you ever talk to who has made up their own system and hasn't clearly understood Scripture will build into their lives a good works salvation. It's everywhere. The third thing is, this guy's righteousness, thirdly, feels really good when compared to other people. It's a righteousness that feels really good. I've already emphasized that a little bit about comparing myself with my neighbor and how good I feel about what I've built into my life for my righteous system. And so this guy has in here um, a feel-good righteousness. I really feel good about it. It's really working for me. Fourthly, I want you to see, as we read through this, because the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector shows you that he's puffed up and proud in his comparison, but the, the fourth thing that you don't see in here is sin. He never acknowledges that he's a sinner. So fourthly, as we evaluate his righteousness, is he has a righteousness that fudges on sin. He fudges on the reality of sin in his life. I don't think he thinks he sins. I think he thinks he's gotten past that pretty, pretty much. You know? And when he does get angry or upset, of course it's righteous. And it's, and it's his disdain for the evil that's going on that has caused him to react like that. You don't see any comprehension in this guy that he is a sinner 
and that his life is really on the core a mess. It's where Jesus is going with the drill bit. He's going to core to the center of his being, starting with verse 21. Oh, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And this Pharisee's walking around thinking, I've never murdered anybody. I've never taken a knife and cut anybody's throat. I've never shot anybody. I've never, I've never murdered anybody by accident, even in an auto wreck or anything. I've never done any of that. And Jesus said, but in your heart, you're full of murder. This guy's not thinking about what's on the inside. It's all external and pride-based. All external. He fudges on sin. He minimizes sin. Listen, if you don't acknowledge your sinfulness, you'll never repent before a holy God. You don't need to because you don't think you have any sin. Fifthly and finally, I want you to see that he felt no need. There was no felt need for the mercy of God. There was no felt need for the mercy of God. Let's read again verses uh, uh, and verse 11 is where he says, I thank you that I'm not like this other guy. It, it's his featuring his good behavior. I give all these things. It feels good when he compares himself to other people. He never mentions sin. He fudges on sin. In verse 13, the tax collector, though, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You don't see that in the Pharisee. It's completely absent. Number five, no felt need for the mercy of God. He was far from being broken and needy. Let's look for a minute at this tax collector. He's a pitiful wretch of a man, isn't he? Somehow, somewhere, conviction had overwhelmed him. He comes slinking in, and he's so upset as he realizes in some magnified way in the core of his being, he's full of the pus of sin. And that it continually spills out in his life. And he can't even raise his head. And all he can whisper out is, God, just be merciful to me. Just be merciful to me. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you deserve. That's what mercy is. It's when you deserve... You get punched in the mouth for that. And God says, I'll just punch Jesus in the mouth for that. It's when God doesn't give you what you deserve. So what is the prerequisite? Okay, 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 okay. wait a minute, wait a minute. We've had this big explosion. The hot air balloon has hit the high tension wires. I can't believe I just heard this. My righteousness has to surpass Mother Teresa and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the studiers of the book? That's impossible. That's right. So what is the prerequisite? Look at, look at what Jesus says about the man who's broken. I tell you, verse 14, this man went down to his house, what's the next word? Justified. Rather than the other. In other words, when that Pharisee stands before God, it's not a good enough righteousness. But when the tax collector stands before God, he's justified. I want you to know that that is one of the finest words you can ever wrap your brain around. Here's what it means. Turn to Romans 5.1 quickly and just glance your eyes on it. You can underline this verse in your Bible. Romans 5.1 uses this word. 
Look what it says. This is important. Therefore, Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by... What's the next word? We have... What's the next word? Peace. With whom? Wow. So listen. By faith, we get justified so that we have peace with God. That is a profound reality. You have to get this straight. Okay? To have peace with God... To have peace with God means that when you stand before God and He asks you, does your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes? You'll be able to say, indeed it does. By no merit of my own. But if you will check your official documents in heaven, you will find that I have been justified. Here's what justified means. It's a judicial term. We've talked about it numerous times. Justified means that there was a moment in your life when you stand or stood before God the judge. God as judge. So picture God Almighty, however you see Him, be careful. Picture God behind His desk, the big courtroom, and He's high, and everybody else is held back by the bailiff and the railing. And you, as a criminal offender, are before God the judge. And indeed, you're a criminal offender. You have sinned. Because Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And furthermore, the reward or the wages for that sin is death. It's a law of the universe. It's established. They can't change the law. So you're standing there. You're guilty. Lying, cheating, scheming, thinking bad stuff. You're just dirty. And you stop and think about it. You say, well, I only do that about once a week. That's pretty good. That's 52 times a year. In 10 years, that's 5,200 sins. You're going to impress the judge when the prosecuting attorney unrolls the docket form or whatever they call the thing, and they have five, does this guy, has this guy sinned? Only once a week, Your Honor. And the prosecutor says, actually, it's in just 10 years, 5,200 offenses. What? 5,200 offenses? What about 20 years? What about 30 years? What about 70 years? You're digging yourself in a hole you can't get out. And there's only one thing that can happen. Listen. God looks at the offender. He's in his judge mode. He's got his judge outfit on. He's thinking judicial. He's thinking Righteous judgment. He's thinking demands of the law. He's thinking the law states it so it has to happen. And he says, he's ready to throw the book at this guy. And Jesus jumps up and says, wait a minute, I died for that guy. I I paid his penalty. And that guy one day came before the cross... And he acknowledged the fact that he was so sinful, he was condemned forever, he couldn't even raise up his head, he pounded on his chest, he was broken over his sinfulness, he he stopped bragging about his tithes, he stopped bragging about his righteous deeds, and he recognized that he indeed was filled with the pus of sin, and he could do nothing about it, and so he came to the cross, and like Romans 5.1 says, by faith he accepted the fact that Jesus, who had kept the law perfectly, jumped in His place, took the electric chair for Him, took the cross for Him, and by faith, He received that to Himself, 
so that the righteousness of Christ could be given to him in exchange for his filthy sinfulness that he laid down at the foot of the cross. All by faith. All by belief. No works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace. Now, mercy is what you don't get from a holy God when He holds back His wrath. That's mercy. I'm going to be merciful. You deserve condemnation. I'm not giving it to you. Grace, on the other hand, it's the kissing cousin. Grace is, you don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you. It's amazing, grace is. I just made that up. It's amazing. Yeah. It's an overworked term. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. Because I once was lost, but now I'm found. And I have a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. Who alone on the planet ever had a righteousness that surpassed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Jesus, who fulfilled the law. Jesus, who did not come to abolish the law, but to live it out and fulfill it. And He's sharing it with us, this righteousness. And God accepts it. And so back to God the judge in the courtroom... When Jesus acknowledges that this guy has been to the cross, this girl has been to the cross, and acknowledged their sinfulness, this tax collector in brokenness has been to the cross, and I have taken their sin away and put it on myself and paid the price, your honor, for it, and I have put my account over on him. My righteous account is credited to him only by their faith. And God says, good. He, the God the judge bangs down the gavel, and the clerk of the court checks off by your name, justified. Once and for all, declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God. Justified. Once and for all, declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God. Bam! That is the only way out of your predicament. Because the only righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees is the righteousness of Christ. But He'll give it to you. By faith. You see, God demonstrates His love like this. That even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He said, whosoever will may come. He said, I love the world and you so much that I gave my only Son to go take your junk and give you His righteousness so that you can stand in my courtroom and have justified check next to your name. And your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Do you see where Jesus is going with this audience? Do you see where this Sermon on the Mount is unfolding? You think you've kept the law? You think the Pharisees that are watching us right now are the most righteous people you've ever seen and going to get into heaven? You ain't heard anything yet. You've got to have a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. <gasps> But there's an answer. I've given you the rest of the story. We'll keep pursuing the sermon and see how Christ unfolds it and reveals Himself in this message. The demands of righteousness of a holy God can only be met at the foot of the cross. Have you been there? Let's bow in prayer, please. I'm going to ask you to examine your heart this morning in the quietness of the moment before I close in prayer. And we're going to sing a traditional... Old Gospel Invitational Hymn, Just As I Am, Without One Plea. That's how you come to God. Just as you are right now. But you need to examine your heart. Is your righteousness like that of the Pharisees where it's external, it's pride-based? 
It's, it's satisfied because it's better than others around you? Or are you like the tax collector, this pitiful broken man who comes in and he can't even raise his head and he demonstrates in living color the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. I have nothing to boast about. I only have a problem. You know you're a sinner today, my friend. What I want to make sure is that you're not thinking incorrectly or been taught incorrectly. And that you think by going to church services or praying to Mary or saying repetitive prayers or having been baptized as a child or putting money in the offering plate or anything like that, that you would think any of that is going to get you points with God and get you a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. It's not going to work. So you have to take the only righteousness available, the righteousness of Christ, so that you can have peace with God today. You might say something like this to God. God, as I examine my heart today, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I hate that. And I ask, in Jesus' name, that you will save me from my sin by giving me the righteousness of Christ and be merciful to me, a sinner. That prayer alone works like that tax collector. Just be merciful to me, God, a sinner. He knows your heart. He knows the cry of it. He knows your prayer. If you prayed that prayer while we're singing, A, you're welcome to come down front and declare your faith in Christ. That's hard for many people to do in our culture. I would love to have a record by you taking one of the yellow cards and writing your name and your email or phone number on it and hand it to me or to Pastor Everett when you go out the door. And, and that will indicate that you prayed to receive the righteousness of Christ, to put your faith and trust in Christ alone, what He did, and no merit of your own. Because we would like to contact you and help you grow in Christ, help you just pray with you. We're, we're nice guys. We won't intimidate you at all. That would be very helpful to know that. Right now, will you examine your heart? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, thank you for the shocking statement of Jesus that wakes us up and helps us realize that what we're trusting in might give way to a great crash. What a shame for us to live our entire lives and stand before you one day and realize that we've been thinking wrong and we've been taught wrongly. And I pray that you would bring great clarity now to our minds and our hearts. And that you would draw people unto yourself, convict of sin, that we would bow in humility before you and cry out for mercy to you, a holy God, and be justified, declared righteous once and for all by a holy God through the righteousness of Christ. Please open our eyes. Purify our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name.